0: Ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to, to 33. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 25 to 33, where we see Paul addressing husbands. Because two weeks ago, on April 23rd, we looked at Paul's instructions for wives. And uh, that was a long sermon. I don't have time to, uh, to re preach it all today, but it's certainly on the website. Uh, but today, looking at Paul's instructions for husbands, um, which you may know is around three times as long as his instructions for wives, and uh, to that the wives say, amen, and of course, and, and it should be longer, Pastor, and I, I don't disagree. Um, but before we, we get into our text, let me remind us of a few things. First, remember, this is not a, a topical sermon series, it's not a topical sermon on, on marriage, I'm I'm not even attempting to say all that could be or even necessarily should be said on the topic of marriage or on a husband's role within marriage. Rather, this is an expository sermon series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which means my obligation to you is to preach the text, to seek to explain as well as I can what it means, and to seek to apply it to our lives with pastoral wisdom and pastoral care as I depend on the Holy Spirit to move and work through God's Word in the hearts of God's people. Second, we, we do well to, to remember that this section on marriage is, is not to be thought of as like a separate attachment to, to Paul's email to the Ephesians. It, it's very much embedded in, ingrained in, and, in part, and part of what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, his, his overall message in this letter. So we shouldn't forget what, what's come before. I mean, we, we know, we've been in Ephesians for now over a year and a half, and so we know in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul sets out for us the, the riches of the gospel in Jesus Christ for those of us who are in Christ. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the, the second half of Paul's letter, he begins to instruct us concerning the practical applications and implications which flow out of the grace of God for us in Christ. And those applications and implications continue in our text, in this text directed to wives and husbands. So we must not forget that Paul's teaching and instruction on marriage is rooted in, connected to, flows out of his wider teaching on the amazing grace of God for sinners like us, in Christ. In fact, we're going to see that Jesus' love and his redeeming work for his bride is found throughout our passage. It's mentioned over and over and over again. Now, the third thing I want to remind us of is that we shouldn't forget the immediate context. We shouldn't forget what Paul immediately taught right before he began to address wives and husbands. You may remember that, that Paul said, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery." Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul taught on how all Christians are to be continuously filled with the Spirit, that is, to be directed by God's Word, as we read in the parallel passage in Colossians 3, that if we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, as we're moved along in our Christian life by the Holy Spirit, that is, as the Holy Spirit so permeates and impacts every area of our lives, that everything we think and say and do is really a material consequence of the Spirit's influence, direction, control, and work as we participate in our union with Christ. And it's from that teaching on the Spirit-filled Christian life that Paul goes right into the topic of marriage, and he begins to address wives and husbands. Then he's going to address children and parents. And then he addresses servants and their masters. And then once he finishes that, then Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, Finally be strong in the Lord, and in the spirit of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, And the reason why I recap all of that for us is that so that we don't miss that in between Paul's teaching on what it means... To be a mature and growing spirit filled Christian, and his teaching on spiritual warfare and putting on the whole armor of God is marriage and parenting in workplace relationships. I mean, you see what this means The, the Christian life, the spirit filled Christian life, is to be lived out in our marriages, in our homes in our friendships, in our careers, in how we live with and relate to and serve those around us. The battleground for spiritual warfare is in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in the workplace. You see, brothers and sisters, our sanctification and our spiritual maturity is seen and measured in how we live in our marriages and our homes In our ordinary, ordinary, everyday, mundane interactions, exchanges, opportunities, disagreements with those who we live with and work with. So as it pertains to our passage today, simply put, it matters how we treat our spouses. And we are not more mature, we're not more holy, we're not more godly, we're not more sanctified than the sanctification that we live out in our marriages, in our homes. You see, don't, don't think that your, your marriage can be all that you desire for it to be, while at the same time, you ignore God's clear teaching on marriage. Now, I mentioned this to you two weeks ago, but Alistair Begg has, a, I think, a very helpful little quote. He says you know, that a good marriage is like a golf swing. It's not easy, but it is straightforward. And that's what we see in this passage. I mean, none of this, none of Paul's instructions for wives, none of his instructions for husbands is is easy to actually live out, but it is fairly straightforward. And so if you're here this morning and you're in a difficult marriage, and or perhaps you're beginning to lose hope regarding your marriage ever getting better, healthier, stronger, then I'm glad you're here this morning, and I want to read to you a, a A quote, it's actually, it's a little bit of a long quote. I read to you a couple of weeks ago, but I want to remind you of it. It's from a a book titled Gospel-Shaped Marriage by Chad and Emily Van Dixhorn. And I think it helps set the appropriate posture of our hearts with gospel hope as we enter this passage. They write, when Christians are hopeless, we are forgetting that we know that we are no longer in the garden after our first parents sin and before the giving of the gospel We are not stuck in the moments or hours before God promised to crush the serpent. No, we are living on the other side, or I would say on this side of God's promise to send a seed of Adam to be our Savior. We're even living on on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, of of disciples looking with wonder up into heaven and looking to Christ in faith. We live in the age of the Spirit whose enabling power gives grace to sinners who long to love others as Christian saints should. Perhaps you know of someone whose marriage isn't that great. Maybe you yourself are all too aware that your spouse is a sinner and you feel stuck. You may feel let down or even betrayed. Your marriage is not all you expected it would be. Well, redemptive history has something to teach us. For those who know Christ marriages really can get better both bad marriages and even the good ones and that's how i want us to to enter this scripture passage with this 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 gospel hope and and with gospel humility i mean it's very humbling for a pastor to teach on the topic of marriage especially with his wife in the room maybe the only thing more humbling is to teach on the topic of parenting with his children in the room which I'll do next week. But we praise God that for those who know Christ, marriages really can get better, both the bad ones and even the good ones. And so, here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life giving word. I'm going to read the whole passage from verse 22 to verse 33, then we'll focus on 25 and following. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. So we see in this passage that husbands are called to love their wives with a love modeled by Christ's love for the church. And we see in this passage that that this love is to be a love that's marked by being a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and I don't have a third S, a cherishing love. So a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and a cherishing love. And as we read in the passage, verse 32, there in the conclusion says, this mystery about marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, marriage is an illustration or a pointer to the gospel, to Jesus' love and saving work for his bride, for the church. Don't lose sight of that. Remember that as we work our way through through this passage. Theologian John Stott says this, Paul uses five verbs to indicate the unfolding stages of Christ's commitment to his bride, the church. He loved her, gave himself up for her, to sanctify her, having cleansed her, that he might present her to himself. The statement is so complete and comprehensive, it seems to trace Christ's care for his church from a past to a future eternity. And I want us to keep this in mind as we wait, work our way through this passage. You see, this, this text is it's so much more than merely tips on how to have a better marriage. Although it is that, but it's primarily teaching us about the amazing love of Christ. For us, his church, his bride. So husbands are called to love their wives with a love modeled by Christ's love for the church. The first thing we see is this is a sacrificial love. So look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen to it again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, men, if you take this seriously, and I hope you take it seriously, then these words, these words are staggering. I mean, yes, I mean, Paul's instructions to husbands, three times as long as his instruction to wives, but I'm not even sure that Paul needs to go beyond just verse 25. I mean, as one pastor put it, there's no honest Christian husband who can hear or read these words. And not feel the punch. And it hits hard. I mean we talked two weeks ago about the husband's burden of, of headship. But notice in verse 25. And then look for it later in verse 28 and verse 33. That Paul says over and over and over again. That husbands are to love their wives. Not rule over their wives. But to love them. So it's not an overstatement to say the most important characteristic of a Christian husband's relationship with his bride is love. And looking at verse 25, there are two significant phrases that I think we need to not read past too quickly in verse 25. Look at it again with me. Husbands, love your wives first as Christ loved the church. Think about that phrase. as as Christ loved the church. Do you know what the word as means? It means as. It means just as Christ loved the church. In the same way that Christ loved the church, so husbands are to love their wives. Okay, well, how did Christ love the church? Well, the second phrase is, gave himself up for her. See, that's... That's sacrificial language, talking about sacrificial love. It's referring to Jesus atoning sacrificial death on the cross for his church, for the elect, for his bride on the cross. See, it's been said that the most important word in the Bible is the Greek word translated for, F-O-R, in Ephesians 5.25. It's a little Greek word, hooper, which means for or on behalf of. It's referring to this sacrificial love of Christ. Think about Christ giving himself on behalf of his bride, the church. Think about that. One pastor put it, Christ's back was scourged. His hands and feet were nailed to the wood. A spear was thrust into his side. A crown of thorns was placed on his head, all because he loved the church. Christ's sacrificial love is a foot-washing love. His headship is our model. He came to serve, though he was the head. We see in Christ authority coupled with unparalleled humility and love. I mean, and then there's the, the drinking of the cup of God's just and holy wrath for our sins down to the very dregs for us, on our behalf. As Pastor Richard Phillips puts it, here is the heart of the gospel that Christ lived and died and rose again on behalf of us and for our salvation. And this is also the heart of a husband's love for his wife as well, to live and to die on behalf of her. Now, an illustration of this uh, comes from one of the Greek histories about uh, Cyrus, the ruler of Persia. You may remember that name because he allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem after the exile. And uh, the story goes this way, that the, the wife of one of his generals was accused of treason, and she was condemned to die. And so as soon as her husband found out about this About her treason and about Cyrus finding out, he rushed into the palace, burst into the throne room. He throws himself on the floor before the emperor and he cries out, oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Now, Cyrus, who by all historical accounts was a noble and even extremely sensitive man, was was touched by this offer. And he said, love like that must not be spoiled by death. And then he gave the husband and wife back to each other and let the wife go free. And as they walked together, the husband said to his wife, Did you notice how kindly the emperor looked at us when he gave you the pardon? And the wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. Now that's a a powerful, beautiful story. You think about this husband. I mean, he, he, he doesn't sit back in passivity, takes the initiative, and yet he doesn't enter the emperor's throne room frustrated at his bride for her treason. I mean, she was wrong, she was guilty, and yet he loved her sacrificially. And my guess is that every wife in this room is, is eager, willing to follow and respond to this type of, of servant leadership and sacrificial love. Of a husband who leads and loves like this. But let's be honest. Okay, men, fellow husbands, let's be honest. I believe it can be easier for us to think of doing something like that dying dramatically, bloodily, violently, I don't know, taking a bullet for our brides. Easier to do that. That is to love our brides in the ordinary, everyday, mundane interactions and disagreements and exchanges and opportunities that we have. Put another way, on the one hand, I think we can profess that we'd be willing to take a bullet for our wives, if it ever came to that. But on the other hand, and a few minutes later, we end up huffing and puffing and complaining when we have to take out the trash. But you look at Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not easy to actually do, but it is straightforward. It includes dying to your own self-interest and your own personal preferences for the sake of your bride. It means you place her needs before your own. It means you die to yourself every day for her sake. It means you're willing to to wear yourself out in service of her instead of demanding and watching her wear herself out in serving you. It means you say, I will gladly give my life for yours, and then you, you, you live it out. You mean it. See, husbands are called to love their wives with a love modeled by Christ's love for the church. And that love is a sacrificial love. Secondly, we see it's a sanctifying love. So, look with me at verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, so look at this passage. There's a lot going on here, and it's wonderful, and it's deep. But notice, Paul's not saying that husbands sanctify their wives. Husbands can't sanctify their wives. Christ does that. Husbands don't redeem their wives. Christ does that. But husbands are to seek the good and the spiritual growth of their brides in love. And so the actions in verses 26 and 27, they're describing what Christ does for the church. Okay, so keep looking at those verses. Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church, for us, that he might sanctify us. That is, that he might set us apart as holy. That Christ cleanses us, washes us clean through his death, through his shed blood on the cross. And then in verse 26, we read that Christ cleansed his bride by the washing of water with the word, which seems to point to our baptism. And then verse 27 tells of our ultimate destiny in Christ, that he might present us, the church, you, me, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that that we might be holy and without blemish. Think about this as as you listen to this quote from Professor S.M. Ball. I want us to to let this kind of marinate in our minds and our hearts. He says, These actions in verses 26 and 27 are not those of the husband for his wife, but of Christ for the church. Even more importantly, Christ's model demonstrates a love towards someone who's not perfect or purely lovable. In this case of of the church, she's full of warts and wrinkles. And the impurities, that's that's true of this church. Outside Christ's loving consecration and cleansing. Paul combines two metaphors to explain the work of Christ in verses 25 and 27. Sacrificial purification and the wedding day. While these two may seem totally separate to us, what unites them is stated in the central purpose of Christ's redemptive work in verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. The church is Christ's bride who must be sanctified from her impurity before she enters the divine presence of her husband. You see, marriage, even your marriage, even my marriage, our marriage is an illustration pointing to Jesus' love and his saving work and his sanctifying work for his bride, the church. See, Christ is preparing a bride the church for himself. And he has been preparing a bride, the church for himself. I mean, think about what we've already learned back in Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That Christ has been preparing a bride for himself since before the foundation of the world. Then you look ahead to the, to the second to last chapter in the Bible, how Revelation 21 begins, and we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband." You see, this this text is not merely about tips for how to have a happy marriage, though it is that. it's, It's telling us about the amazing love of God in Christ for you, for his church, for his bride. See, Jesus has been loving and caring for and preparing his church, his bride, from eternity past all the way into eternity future. And one day, Christ will present his church, his bride, in the splendor of utter purity, not of her own making, but because of Christ's redeeming work for her and in her, for us and in us. Therefore, as Jesus' love saves us, sanctifies us, and redeems us for glory, a husband's love ought to be modeled after Christ's love for the church. A husband's love ought to be concerned with the spiritual growth of his bride, So I want to, men, I want to ask if invite you to ask yourself some of these questions. To evaluate how you're doing. Is my wife more like Jesus because she's married to me? Or is she growing spiritually despite me? Do I help make sure that she has time to read and study the Bible and attend women's Bible study? Am I accepting spiritual responsibility for my wife and family? Am am I making Lord's Day worship each Sunday morning a priority for us? Am I making any effort whatsoever to to have times of of Bible reading and prayer and Bible study or family worship, family devotions in our home? Now, listen, hear me on this. No one does this perfectly, nobody does. Okay, but, but the key is you have to never, ever stop restarting again, doing these things. You have to never stop starting, going back at it, trying again, trying to do something, making that effort. Are we making that effort? Am I growing spiritually? Am I studying and learning so that I can better minister to my bride and my family? You know, do we need to join a Sunday school class? join a city group is my wife using her spiritual gifts to serve the church and others do i even know what her gifts are i mean how can i encourage her to use them do i regularly model a lifestyle of repentance can i admit whenever i'm wrong and ask for forgiveness and I, Do I extend forgiveness, or do I tend to, to harbor you know, grudges against her? D- do, I, do I make decisions with her holiness in mind, or only her temporary happiness in mind? You see, husbands are called to love their wives with a love modeled by Christ's love for the church, and this is a sacrificial love and a sanctifying love. Thirdly, we see it's a cherishing love. Now, I told you I didn't have an S for it, but pastor commentator, Kent Hughes, his third S would have been self-love, and that's and, and a little bit confusing to me, but I understand where he's going, because in the next section, Paul Paul's calling husbands to love their brides as themselves. I'm calling it a cherishing love, and you'll see that word appear too. So look at verse 28 to 31. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, Christ loves and nourishes and cherishes his body, the church. And You see that phrase in verse 28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Okay, but why? Well, in marriage, one man and one woman come together for a lifetime. In a one-flesh union. Which means in a biblical, healthy marriage, this one-flesh union means it's impossible to tell where one spouse's life ends and the other spouse's life begins. It's a one-flesh union. The couple shares one life. They share everything from, from their bed to their bank account to, to, to their family to their home, their calendars. They share everything. They share a life. It's a one flesh union. And so this is not easy to do. It's not easy to live out, but it's straightforward. And we understand Paul's point. He's saying that no man in his right mind, no man who's thinking clearly, would ever starve or neglect or harm his own body. Therefore, husbands who are in a one flesh union with their bride should care for and cherish and nourish their wives just as they would their own bodies. And notice the two words that Paul gives husbands, nourish and cherish, nourish and cherish. These are words of of tenderness and concern and responsibility and service and intentionality. Pastor Richard Phillips helps us to apply this to our lives. He says, This requires him to pay attention to her. And that's no small thing. Alicia and I have been married for almost 20 years. It's one of the hardest lessons that I've had to learn. I'm still trying to learn to be able to take that phone and put it down. And, yes, ma'am, what are you saying? To hit pause or turn the TV off, turn my chair around. Yes, ma'am, help, I'm listening. Requires him to pay attention to her, to talk with her in order to know what her hopes and fears are. What dreams she has for the future, where she feels vulnerable, and what makes her anxious or gives her joy. Every day a husband should know his wife's plans for the day, and especially the anxieties and hopes of her heart. This will enable him to pray for her in a meaningful way and encourage her. Okay, so what does this look like? Again, I've got questions for us. Do I include my wife in my dreams and my plans for the future? Do I know where we're headed? Does she know where we're headed? Are we both excited about where we're headed? Is my wife satisfied with the division of our household chores? Or am, am, am I serving her or am I just watching her wear herself out serving me? Or do I need to take some things off of her plate and give them to my kids or take them all myself? Do I seek and value and consider my wife's input on all major financial decisions? Do I follow through on my commitments to her? Do I do what I tell her I'm going to do? Am I keeping us out of debt by living within our means? And this is perhaps the, the hardest thing for men living in Houston to do, perhaps, do I save enough energy and enough creativity and enough initiative for my wife, or do I spend all of it on my work or all my hobbies? Do I know my wife's personal interest? You know, one of the things I tell men in premarital counseling is, you need to be prepared to now get a PhD in your wife understanding her, her interest, her hopes, her fears, her dreams. And then asking, okay, am I providing time for her to pursue her interests and in hobbies and friendships and exercise and talents? You see, husbands are called to love their wives with a love modeled by Christ's love for the church, which is sacrificial, is sanctifying, and is cherishing. And then we see how Paul concludes with verse 32 This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, Paul's saying this relationship of marriage to Christ and the church is not merely an illustration. See, Paul doesn't say, hey, you know what? It might be helpful for you to think of your relationship to Christ sort of like a marriage. That's actually the opposite. That's backwards of what he's saying. You see, God designed marriage from the very beginning, all the way from Genesis 2 uh, something to point forward to Christ and the church. That marriage between a man and a woman was always designed and intended to be a visible representation of something greater, something eschatological. Okay, And by eschatological, what I mean is looking ahead in time to the consummation of God's redemptive work at the end of this present age in the unfolding of the glorious new age at Christ's second coming. Marriage is meant to call us to to think about and realize that, that one day Christ is going to present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That one day we're going to see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So think about that. Think, realize this passage is not merely about tips for how to have a happier marriage. It's about Christ's love for you, his church, his bride. Listen to how Professor Marcus Minninger describes this. He's going to talk about this eschatological vision, but he's also going to begin to move into application. He says, You cannot rightly understand either the nature of marriage or how to conduct yourself in it apart from Christ and Christlikeness. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands should love, nourish, and cherish their wives. Why? Because what God first created in the garden was designed that way, to speak about and show forth the riches of the Christ who would come and has now come, as the head of his body, the church. Because my marriage points to Christ and the church, I do not abandon it or shove it aside. I do not demean it or say it has no relation to my expression of Christian faith. Rather, my eschatological yearning for Christ helps me to value and enjoy my marriage all the more and to seek to beautify it, to make it a good and fitting picture of Christ's self-sacrificial love rather than a shabby or false one. I do not have a lower view of marriage as a Christian, but a higher one, and I invest myself in it more fully if I myself am called to be married as one who understands and gives myself over to the true nature of marriage from the beginning. Something designed to picture Christ. He says, I sacrifice more readily, more fully for my wife, not because that's gentlemanly, or helps make things work more smoothly, not merely because it's I'm being pragmatic, but because I know Christ, and I want to be like him, and I want to show forth something of this eschatological union with the church in a beautiful way here and now. And so listen again to this conclusion. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Then a great summary in verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so how how does a husband love and serve an imperfect wife? He doesn't wait for her to become perfect because that's not how Christ loves the church. And his love for her is to be modeled after the way just as, in the same way that Christ loves the church. That Jesus initiates sacrificial, sanctifying, and cherishing love for an imperfect church. And guess what? When husbands graciously and selflessly love imperfect wives with this sacrificial love, sometimes the wives begin to respond as respectful and submissive, suitable helpers. How does a wife joyfully submit to, trust, and respect the leadership of an imperfect husband? Because she knows that God has graciously arranged the roles in marriage, and God is always perfectly trustworthy. So she can trust the God who's trustworthy while he's at work within her imperfect husband. She doesn't insist on a perfect husband first. And guess what? When wives graciously serve and follow their husbands' imperfect leadership with joy and encouragement and with respect, sometimes the husbands begin to embrace their roles as servant leaders. So do not lose hope. The the biggest problem in your marriage... Is the same as the biggest problem in my marriage, and it's sin. But do not forget where we are in redemptive history. Do not forget that we are on this side of Jesus' first coming, this side of him taking on flesh and living and suffering and bleeding and dying on the cross and rising from the grave and ascending to God's right hand and pouring out the Holy Spirit to defeat sin. And to save us, to change us, to equip us and enable us as the Holy Spirit works through God's word in our hearts to live and grow in Christ's likeness. You see, for those who know Christ, marriages really can get better. If only we would believe that. Marriages really can get better. Both the bad ones and even the good ones. But it requires the intentional, ongoing, prayerful work of husbands and wives which is the very work that Christ has called us to pursue. It's the very work he's equipped us to pursue. All for our great blessing and for his great joy, his great glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for, yes, the practical instruction for wives and for husbands here in this text, but We thank you, Father, for the the wonderful reminder, portrait of how you are preparing a bride, the church, for yourself. How you've been caring for and preparing this bride from eternity past. And how you will carry it all the way into the future. And that one day you will present your church, your bride, in the splendor of utter purity. Not because of our own making, but because of Christ's redeeming work for us and in us. Father, help us now as we spend just a few moments preparing our own hearts to come to this table. This table which is a reminder that you will bring all of your people all the way home. And there awaits for each and every one of us a seat at the table for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Would help us now to prepare our hearts to come to this meal.